there seems to be this cultural kinship about bedbugs and about <laughs> shitty landlords. I was interested in capturing the immediacy of that intimate moment between mother and daughter. Mara, I won't say someday you'll understand, because you likely never will. I've been denying my curiosity all these years, like an anorexic teen who won't admit she wants that fucking cupcake, my life a game of not thinking about you, of avoiding all the sidewalk's cracks. But about a month ago, I felt something deep within snap to attention, a physical, painful crack of the spine, but also a deep quiver shooting up the lightning rod of my psyche. That's when I knew that you were trying to reach me. But of course you wouldn't know how. So I slip-sold up the steps of the library, determined to harness that beast, the internet, and find you. The old chair creaked under my weight as the Google logo winked at me. I'd used computers back in my days at the hospital, of course, but that was well before the internet took over. To me, the internet was still vast, big, unknowable. But my colleagues had explained it to me, the Googling. I'd been told you could type anything into that box. So I hunted and pecked the letters of your name. You were the first thing I Googled, my dear. My darling Mara, famous. How had I been walking around without this knowledge when perfect strangers might know intimate details of my own daughter's life, her height, her chest measurements, that she eats an everything bagel with scallion cream cheese for breakfast and always keeps a bottle of Prosecco in her fridge. A ballerina, living in Manhattan, no less. Someone who snacks on post-performance sashimi. I had to tell someone, anyone. Those heads burrowed in type, in black on white. I cleared my throat to make an announcement. Of course no one would believe me. I see that now. The article said you were the youngest ballerina ever made a principal dancer. So young, but such presence, the media marveled. And there I was, a woman in tatters. Face red and raw, greasy hair split-ended, dirty sweatpants, the only pants I owned besides my work uniform that still accommodated my swollen belly. I was well past the age when people might wonder about the belly, just improperly, overly nourished. I'd been working long shifts at a nursing home, surrounded day in and day out by people slurping the last dregs of life. They often gave me the sweets they were too tired to eat. In the photos, you looked so unattainable, beautiful but scary, powerful. What a perfect arch to those eyebrows. Something so polished, so haughty about your beauty. None of the articles mentioned your mother, only your father and stepmother. But I saw myself in the curve of your Achilles tendon, in that bulge of bicep, the concave stomach as your arms lifted over your head. I was once young, too. I once had a body. The librarian said she would have to ask me to leave if I couldn't be quiet, and so I compromised. 
I could keep the news to myself for now in the interest of research. I used Google to track your career, starting with the headshots on the ballet company website. You had some competition, I saw, but your photo looked the most natural, your smile the most genuine, your shoulders with the most graceful slope. Why did all the women have naked shoulders in these portraits? Only the male dancers were allowed shirts? And then I found the videos. The computer speakers were disabled, so I only got to know your voice through the closed captioning. I stayed in the library until your image burned my eyes, until the lights dimmed and the throat clearing lacked pretense. What a life you've had. Clearly the possibility was there, in the genes. I wonder what I could have become if things had been different. I'm writing you from the hospital garden, sitting on a white bench in need of repainting, facing away from the brick building so I can pretend I'm somewhere else. I'll have to write in short bursts because the ragweed makes me sneeze. This place is not fancy enough to employ a gardener, not like the type of place you would surely be sent. Here, we must make do with what grows unbidden. This brings me to my main point, Mara, about what has been growing inside me all these years. I don't want you to worry, but you should be prepared. And so I had to write, to warn you. I see that now that I'm here. With where you are now, with the resources you surely have at your disposal, there are preventative measures that can be taken. If, God forbid, you end up with this disease, don't let it go so far undetected, like I did. If only I'd known. Years, black chasms. But, darling, lucidity comes and goes, I must say. And the highs are called highs for a reason. Some call it an illness, others call it a gift. My name is Leslie Treitz. I'm a fiction writer and an editor living in Montreal. I'm originally from uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick, but I've been here for about 11 years. My name is Fawn Parker. I'm a writer and editor from Toronto, and I'm the founder of Bad Nudes magazine. I thought I'd begin by just asking you your Montreal origin stories, like how you got here in the first place. Um, I took a bus, <laughs> but I had gotten into this American Sign Language interpreting program in Toronto, and then also the creative writing program at Concordia. And I just couldn't decide where to go or what to do. And then I just, I think I just flipped a coin and I came here and stayed. On the bus? On the bus, on the mega bus. On the mega bus, okay. So you're only allowed one bag? Yeah. Well, you can carry two if you put one underneath yeah. and have a, just a big purse. Yeah. Leslie, how did you get here? What drew you to Montreal? I was finishing my master's degree in Victoria in 2006, and I grew up in New Brunswick, and I didn't really want to go back there. I didn't want to go back to Toronto, where I did my undergrad. I'd always found Montreal attractive, and my best friend was living here, and another best friend was moving here, who's also a writer. So it just seemed like the right time and place, and I kind of moved on a whim when I was finished school, and then I stayed, and 11 years later, I'm still here. I did notice that uh, you have some celebrity um, sightings in mm -hmm. your stories. Uh, one in which I guess it's the home that John Travolta had put an offer in or had lived in or had some... <laughs> he uh, bought it for his ex-wife. Okay. 
Yeah, I so. was uh, living with my boyfriend at the time a couple years ago, and I wasn't allowed to touch his ex-girlfriend's things, which were still distributed around the apartment. So I just wrote this very true-to-life story and thought, well, no one will say it's my boyfriend if I say it's John Travolta, and everything else is just true. <laughs> <laughs> and I notice also, Leslie, in your stories, and and I, I don't know if it's uh, a trend with more contemporary writers, but there are a lot of references to pop culture. One of the stories in particular, uh, there's a whole theme of horror movies mm -hmm. that runs through it. Can you talk a little bit about why that genre makes an appearance in in this story. Yeah, I think that story, um, it's called Fulminology. Mm. It just sort of had an undercurrent of something dark and kind of horrific in a way. And the main character is sort of mourning her, her brother who's passed away. But there was something a little dark about their relationship and about him. Mm. And she's struggling. Um, she's sort of haunted by him and struggling to move on with her life. I think when uh, he became a filmmaker, it just seemed natural that he had this obsession with horror movies. Mm. Those were horror movies. I, I watched a lot of um, cheesy B-horror movies when I was, <laughs> you know, uh, a young person. So it was a way to bring those in. I know the reference to Blair Witch Project in particular for me was very evocative because I, at the time I couldn't actually watch it. It was too, for me too frightening. It, it just sort of echoed a lot of fears that I have Yeah, group activity or, or suspense like that. And I think that was the, the movie that sort of kicked off that genre of mockumentary mm. horror films, or at least it was the first I saw. I think I saw it when I was in high school. And with that very jumpy camera mm. lens, that very visceral style of mm -hmm. filmmaking that can almost make you feel sick to your stomach and it really I guess made an impression on me. Mm -hmm. I mean and some very evocative writing has that effect too mm -hmm. I think. How do you explain Montreal to people who don't live here? It's kind of like if you went to camp and it just didn't stop at the end of the summer and you can just do whatever you want and people just kind of magically don't have jobs and don't really do anything, but yet they're doing so much. There's such a, a vivid art scene, but nothing serious ever gets done. And I don't know how it just manages to keep rolling. Mm. I'm sure it does. It's not in my world, I guess. Yeah, I, th I think Montreal's a very forgiving city, at least in my experience. It kind of gives you the freedom and the space to experiment and to sort of try different things and reinvent yourself and to have a bunch of part-time jobs or, mm. or projects that sort of add up to something rather than a lot of people I know here don't necessarily have the traditional nine-to-five corporate sure, jobs, sure. which it's not just in Montreal, but mm -hmm. I think it's especially common here mm -hmm. among the arts community anyway. So what is, uh, if I could ask, <clears throat> without prying too much, uh, what is the most unusual job you've had to do to support your writing habit in Montreal? I had a job where I was a blogger slash cleaner. So in the morning I would go <laughs> and clean a studio that did badminton launching machines. And then I would also blog about um, gaskets, solid and liquid gaskets. And I didn't know anything about it, so I'd have to go online and search, like, what is a gasket? And then 
just copy that and say a gasket is. And I forget now what that is, but that's what I was doing. Your editing work has some interesting technical writing aspect to yeah, it. Yeah, so I, I guess my jobs, I had an unusual job in Toronto but uh, when I was younger, but since I've lived in Montreal, my jobs have mostly, uh, the jobs that pay the bills have mostly been in IT, doing editing and mm. technical writing. Not so unusual, except that I have to know a lot about technology. Have you had any notable kind of lost in translation moments in Montreal? Maybe initially, on your on initial arrival? Not when I first moved here. I, I was lucky I already spoke French and mm. I'd already known some Montrealers. Uh, occasionally I've noticed, I remember going on sort of a, a business trip with a Francophone colleague once and she thought it was really strange that I referred to my boyfriend as a partner and she was like, it's like he's your business partner because <sighs> in French she would say amoure, you wouldn't oh, say okay. partner. And I remember us having a conversation about the differences in... Uh, so you spoke French before you arrived. Is that due to having lived in New Brunswick? Is yeah. that where you mm -hmm. learned your French mm -hmm. or grew up speaking French? Yeah, I went through school in French immersion. And Fawn? I don't speak any <laughs> French. <laughs> I have a tutor and I took four years of classes at Concordia and I don't speak French. Except in sac. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Has that been an impediment for you so Definitely. Far? Yeah. Yeah. Just in terms of even just not feeling like a nuisance when I go through the day with the service industry, I feel like it's very clunky to use English and French and, and no one wants to compromise. So I speak English and they speak French back. And I just haven't had a, a normal or consistent job since I got here. Okay. <laughs> Do you find in your experience of having lived here and um, maybe having seen people come and go as folks do from Montreal, mm -hmm. um, that there's a romanticized attachment to the city that develops? Yeah, I think so for sure. Because I think the things that people experience here, for some reason, are romanticized in a way that doesn't happen with the same things in other cities. And so there seems to be this cultural kinship about bedbugs and about <laughs> shitty landlords and just all these things that are awful but I have fond memories of talking to my friends about bugs and like being covered in bumps and meeting my boyfriend's family and it's like these are like the highlights of my life now but I think in Toronto I would just think like oh I'm in Toronto and I have bedbugs but there's just something like jovial <laughs> Even about the bed bugs whatever in happens Montreal here or... like someone pulls a knife and it's just like funny and endearing in Montreal. How about you? Yeah, I think the people I know that have left romanticize. For me, I, I think of different aspects of Montreal. <laughs> More like the, oh, the croissants and the cheese that I, you know, I have friends that have moved back to the U.S. or back to Toronto and just they miss a lot of the food culture actually mm. is the thing I hear about most. And the, just the level of fun and, and informality and mm. play that seems to be at work. Yeah. And the tantams. No. <laughs> I mean, a lot of my stories, I think, are about someone that's moved away from their hometown and tries to go back and doesn't fit in. But not too many of my stories are actually set in Montreal. Mm -hmm. I think I'm better at writing about a place after I've left it. So oh, interesting. I've okay. written more about the, the cities I've lived and no longer live in, mm. at least in, in this collection. Mm. Maybe I'll write about Montreal in future. <laughs> well, I hope it doesn't mean you'll have to leave in order to, to <laughs> yeah, do that. That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> I think that... I mean, I moved here when I was 18, so I wasn't even really a person in Toronto in the sense mm. that I would explore the city in a big way on my own. 
So I think this is really the only city that I know in that way. And like, I wouldn't have gone to Toronto bars or really made my way around the city. I just lived in like Midtown with my family. So I think that that's why my idea of being the person I am when I write about myself is in Montreal. I want to talk a little bit about the titles of your two uh, uh, fun. I know you didn't read from that collection, mm -hmm. but can you tell us about the origin of the title yeah. of that collection? It's looking good and having a good time. I guess I was just saying those kinds of things a lot at the time. I would just always describe a night as like, oh, I had a good time. Or if I were like wearing something really ugly, I'd be like, well, aren't I looking good tonight? And I, I don't know. I thought it was like a funny misrepresentation of my life at all times is that mm. obviously I'm never doing either of these things and your three-tiered pastel am I getting it wrong three-tiered it's a, a three-tiered pastel dream mm. and it's the title of one of the stories yeah. and it's a reference to um the main character is rushing home for her daughter's first birthday and she picks up a cake on the way but I think it sort of also acts as a as a metaphor for the different traditional gender mm. norms and dreams that these characters are facing and trying to live up to or, or break. I notice that both of your collections do explore relationships among family members, mothers and daughters uh, in particular, but also siblings and parents. Mm. I just think my mom is so funny that I just put true things that she does into kind of surreal stories and she fits right in. So I just can't not write about her. And what has she said about your stories? She loves it. <laughs> <laughs> because the Canadian Shield thing in one of the stories is that she keeps seeing it everywhere and we go to a restaurant and she sees like a waiter and goes, I think that's the Canadian Shield. But we went on this road trip and every time there was just a formation of rocks, she would think that that was the Canadian Shield and be really excited about it. So she thinks it's funny. Um, I, I guess I'm really interested in, in the dynamics of families and relationships, especially in silence mm -hmm. and in things that don't get said and the tensions and secrets that arise from polite, reserved, restrained environments, mm -hmm. sort of like the culture I grew up in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and you both use second person to address potential or to single out a potential mm -hmm. reader that is uh, the letter Form, mm -hmm. Right mm -hmm. to to the daughter Mara, and I believe you you also use that technique I think sometimes as well. I yeah. do yeah. As a a reader, I almost feel like I'm eavesdropping on mm -hmm. somebody else's correspondence or a private moment. How does that work for you? I think for me at least, it lightens it up a little bit mm. because I'm not saying very serious things, and so to say you is almost like. I'm at a party telling a story, and I think that's the kind of mm. fiction that, at least at the time, I was interested in writing. Yeah, I guess for me, I, I was interested in that sense of, of capturing the immediacy of mm. that intimate moment between mother or daughter. I like the idea of the, the epistolary or the mm -hmm, letter mm -hmm. form of story, although mm -hmm. I try not to overuse it. Well, in that one in particular, is quite effective in the sense that it's unclear whether Mara will ever read this mm -hmm. document in yeah. the first place, and it almost feels um, uh, it almost feels like a like a will, in a way. Yeah, you know? it's sort of sort a of legacy is. being um, shared in some fashion. Yeah, she's writing it at at the hospital mm -hmm. when 
she says, my cards are all played, like mm. I'm kind of done. I'm mm. just writing this letter to you to warn you. I am going to read a story called Wonder Horse 2. My office was moved from the second floor to a split room by the front entrance of the factory. They said it was so I could be more readily available to offer my wealth of knowledge. You might not believe it, but I was one of the best and most precise at Wonder Horse 2, despite my being moved and consoled. I had the steadiest hand in the factory, and sometimes I even painted other employees' copyrights and years on the horses' bellies for them. You also might not believe it because I didn't look the part. I didn't have anything eclectic going on with my clothing, but that's how us true professionals are. I painted the small plastic horses in such a way that I could have gained international recognition if not for the Wonder Horse 2 company name overshadowing the identities of its individual employees. When Gary Malquez from my same floor came to me and confessed he was having trouble with the gradient pattern on the dapple gray, I got him doing it in an afternoon. That was the first day Gary Malquez kissed me, in my old office on the second floor with the paintbrush still in his hand. He held it behind his back like he was embarrassed, and when he left the room it was still behind his back, all the way back to his office like a pair of crossed fingers. Gary Malquez was somewhat of a hero in my opinion. He had it rough growing up, as he was born in the middle of a lake. He floated up one day, a full-grown man, and now a buoy marks that place, marked Gary Malquez. He took the hardship of being born out in the middle of a lake and turned it into a talent. Gary Malquez was one of the best swimmers you'd ever meet. Me and Gary Malquez did some fine work at the Wonder Horse 2 factory. You would have been impressed had you snooped on us painting the small plastic horses. When the other's office doors were shut, me and Gary Malquez would paint our horses together and come up with made-up names for new horse breeds. Gary Malquez would joke that he would start painting them on the horses' bellies and wait for them to become integrated into normal horse lovers' vocabulary. When I thought of a really funny one, he would laugh for a long time and then kiss me. Sometimes I would ask Gary Malquez to tell me the story of his birth, at least what he remembered from it. He did such a good job telling it that most times I would start to cry, and then maybe once in a while Gary Malquez would start to cry too. His tears came out not salty at all, but like lake water. I would kiss his eyes left and then right. I loved Gary Malquez. The women on the second floor of the factory didn't like me for loving him, but I didn't care. The women at the Wonder Horse 2 factory didn't like men at all. Hi, this is Michael Blair, and I'm making this recording from my apartment a couple of clicks up the road from the Atwater Library in the west end of downtown Montreal. You may know me or you may not. I'm a mystery writer. To date, I've published seven books. The most recent is called The Evil That Men Do, released into the wild in March 2017 by Linda Leith Publishing. It's my first novel set in Montreal, a story about a footloose fellow named Riley who comes home after 20 years on the road to find himself entangled in the wreckage left behind by a sociopathic conman who ran a $50 million Ponzi scheme in Hudson and the West Island. Sound familiar? The book I'd like to recommend is Madeleine Thien's Do Not Say We Have Nothing, 
winner of the 2016 Scotiabank Buehler Prize, the 2016 Governor General's Prize, and shortlisted for the 2016 Man Booker Prize. Set mostly in the People's Republic of China during the turbulent decades of the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, and the massacre at Tiananmen Square, it's a beautifully written and compelling story of ordinary people caught up in extraordinary times, of love and loss, of triumph and tragedy, of personal and artistic survival in a country run by old men with an almost pathological fear of outsiders. It's nothing short of magnificent, and I'm looking forward to reading it again. Signing off now, this has been Michael Blair recommending Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeleine Thien for Quebec Libris. Inside the Frozen Mammoth is created by the Association of English Language Publishers of Quebec and features writers published by our members. Interviews by Marianne Couture. Technical production and editing by Jess Glavina. Anna Leventhal is the executive producer. Original music by Pamela Hart. Cover art by Adam Waito. Thanks to the Canada Council for the Arts for supporting this project. For more information, visit aelaq.org.